we were thinking of all the wild times that we used to have. When we would creep into a Holiday Inn bathroom, all of us in the dead of night, unwrap a bar of soap and leave it unused the following morning. It's one o'clock and time for lunch. Bom da dum de dum When the sun beats down and I lie on the bench, I can always hear them talk. I court jester, Mr Peter Gabriel, would probably like to say a few words. Contrary to public opinion, we were not taking the night off to watch the elephants mating at the zoo. It's the last great invention left to mankind. Screams a drooping lady, offering her dream dolls at less than extortionate prices. And as the notes and coins are taken out, I'm taken in. This is David Colosi with another episode of The Napping Wizard Sessions. In my multi-part series, Peter Gabriel, The Stories, I'm featuring the tales that Peter Gabriel told as introductions and time fillers between songs while he was in the band Genesis from the years 1967 to 1975. In part one, I covered the green trouser suit story, some early singles, the stagnation story from Trespass, and the musical box from Nursery Crime. In part two, I covered the rest of the stories from the nursery crime group about terrifying hogweeds and the first hermaphrodite. And then I moved to the stories from the Foxtrot group, a watcher of the skies that could be either from Mars or Coca-Cola, a real estate developer with a scheme to genetically modify his tenants, King Canute commanding the waves, and finally Michael and his self-pleasuring worm dance. In part three of this series, I pick up where I left off with the stories from Selling England by the Pound and The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. The costumes are by now in full swing, as is the music, but I won't be playing the songs, just the stories that preceded them in live shows. So stay tuned to meet Britannia, the cosmic lawnmower, piles of bodies in one dirty river mouth, and Romeo and Juliet in the cinema. Then Rael and his adventures with the Lamia, Slipperman, and his brother John. This is Peter Gabriel, The Stories, Part 3. Genesis's fifth studio recording, Selling England by the Pound, the band decided to get their British on. Can you tell me where my country lies? Through the title and the songs, they explored Englishness and the commercialization of English culture and where they fit into it. By 1973, their music was gaining a cult following in the United States, and they'd been touring primarily in Belgium, Italy, and Germany, in addition to playing at home in England. But as this was the 1970s, the Beatles had already invaded, but had also just broken up. And the three-minute pop song was still high currency in the UK and around the world. If the Beatles personified Britishness, then a song like Supper's Ready didn't position Genesis as very British. By By this time, as I've played already, Peter often made fun of commercialization with mock advertising in his intros, calling out Coca-Cola, Kellogg's Corn Flakes, and Tesco supermarkets. And some of the members of the band, not all, were curious about what a Genesis hit single would sound like, and what it would do for the growth of their audience and their record sales. So the pound was putting some weight on them. But as still an art rock band, this exploration included a heavy dose of irony. Irony or not, it worked to their advantage in many ways. I Know What I Like in Your Wardrobe came the closest they'd come yet to a hit, reaching number 21 in the UK. 
The rest of the songs were still epic musical numbers and include possibly one of Gabriel's thickest lyric contributions yet in The Battle of Epping Forest, a song rich in narrative, characters, and costume, but oddly, no introductory story. And that's what I'm here to play. There are three songs that have stories associated with them, Dancing with the Moonlit Night, Firth of Fifth, and The Cinema Show. And I Know What I Like in Your Wardrobe has a short intro that's worth playing. Dancing with the Moonlit Night is the best one to start with because it's first on the album and also because it has a relevant character, costume, and story. When he sang it, Peter dressed in a long purple cape, a helmet with feathers on top. He held a lance and a shield painted in the colors of the Union Jack, and under the cape he wore a one-piece in the shape of a woman's bathing suit, also in the Union Jack colors. The name of this character is Britannia. And there's a series of photographs of Peter as Britannia posing, licking a replica of the Statue of Liberty with the Statue of Liberty in the background. So here's the British invading America licking a gift from the French. The first introduction is from the Rainbow Theatre in London on February 9th, 1973. We'd now like to take you into the English Channel where it's cold and wet. And a lady sits in the middle wearing this strange garment. Oops. We'll get more information as we go. So the second intro is from the Shepperton Film Studios in England, recorded on October 30th and 31st, 1973. I am in the English Channel. It is cold, exceedingly wet. I am the voice of Britain before the Daily Express. My name is Britannia. This is my song, it's called Dancing with the Moonlit Night. And in this one from New York City's Felt Forum on November 22nd, 1973, Peter describes his costume for his American audience. So it's Thanksgiving Day. So you're sitting inside the Felt Forum. You're looking at a strange spectacle. With feathers. What on earth are you doing in the Felt Forum looking at a strange spectacle with feathers on Thanksgiving Day? <laughs> well, looking the impersonation of the glory of the British Empire, the physical embodiment of all that was good from Great Britain, Britannia. Britannia is ill. This is her song. She sings it from the Atlantic, where it is cold and wet. And a month later, this is from the Roxy in Los Angeles, the early show on December 19th, 1973. Good day! Hello! Second verse, same as the first. This particular contraption concerns a large lady who lives entirely on her past, extremely uncomfortable, and a little damp or wet, considering she's sitting somewhere in the water between England and France. Her name, Britannia. Her song, Dancing with the Moonlit Night. And then here's the one from the Late Show at the Roxy in Los Angeles on that same date. Everyone, it's really nice to have you here. Really, so excited for this last performance from Genesis of 1973. We'd like to give you all our good tidings 
and I hope that you will select all your gifts from the Spiegel catalog of 1973, which we are being paid huge sums of money to advertise for this evening. And now we'd like to take it away. And consider the feathered friend in the center of the floor, the last dying personification of the British Empire, Britannia with big boobs. Britannia wrote a little song titled A Dancing with the Moonlit Night. There he is again mocking commercialism with the Spiegel catalog during gift giving season. I don't know if he's in his Britannia costume or if he has the costume on stage that he refers to as a puppet. This is the show that he wore the Santa suit for, so he either wore both or had to choose. His band members always said they were never sure which costumes Peter had packed in his luggage, so it wasn't only the audience he kept guessing. This next one is from the Student Auditorium in Toledo, Ohio, on April 6, 1974, and it's the most elaborate version of the story. before your eyes represents the pomp, the majesty, the pride of the British Empire. Her name Britannia, a task to guard the waves between England and France. And she sits on a small pair of water wings and sinks slowly into the water. As she sinks, she realizes the answer to her fate might be to seek for enlightenment she rushes into the supermarket, grabs a small supermarket trolley marked Chariot of the Gods. And as she hurtles down the passageway, grabs a small packet of Buddha biscuits, a small packet of Krishna cookies and a few Jesus jumpers. <laughs> These she sticks in her mouth, chews upon them until fully masticated, and spits them out into a large balloon till it's about this big. She picks out a little pocket knife, rams it in the bottom of the balloon. The contents fall upon a small sheet of manuscript paper, which when spun at a speed of 33 and a third RPM, sound a little like this. There's Britannia in the supermarket commodifying and consuming three of the world's religions. The story makes a nice connection to the last and least represented song on the album, Isle of Plenty, which references three supermarket chains, Safeway, Fine Fair, and Tesco, and then goes on to list sale specials for English Ribs, Peak Freen's Family Assorted, Fairly Liquid Squid, Table Jellies, Anchor Butter, and Bird's Eye Dairy Cream Sponge. If selling England by the pound was going to be about the commercialization of English culture, then Britannia, in the supermarket, stuffing her face with religious-themed cookies fits the bill. So following the songs in their order, I'll play two short intros to I Know What I Like in Your Wardrobe. It's one o'clock and time for lunch. I'm be down, be down. When the sun beats down and I lie on the bench, I can always hear them talk. The first is from the Stadt Theater in Osnabrück, Germany on September 23rd, 1973 and the second from the Shepperton Film Studios, England, recorded on October 30th and 31st, also 1973. This next one tells of a gardener mowing the lawn. And now we're going to take you a little further westward, agriculturally speaking, to where the sweet smell of freshly mown grass pervades our hairy nostrils. 
not enough time for the cosmic log When he sings this song, Peter wears a helmet, makeup, and a thin black bodysuit, and he carries a piece of wheat or something in his teeth. So that's the cosmic lawnmower. Peter, in a retrospective interview about this recording on the Genesis Archive box set, said how he was dissatisfied with the chorus, which he thought to be flat and feeding the commercial or pop song interest. And in that same retrospective interview, Tony Banks felt that if they had left out the confusing wardrobe bit in the title, the song might have reached higher on the charts than number 21. And if you're curious about the reasons Peter left the band after the Lamb Lies Down tour, then you can start to get a whiff of it by comparing these two comments. But we're not there yet. First, there's a fantastically odd story preceding Firth of Fifth. not England, it takes a little stab at Scotland. The title is a pun on Firth of Forth, with Firth being an estuary or the mouth of the River Forth in Scotland. Apparently, there is no fifth Firth to the River Forth. There's a lot to listen to here, so I'm going to jump right in. Here is the first telling of the story from Massey Hall, Toronto, Canada, on November 8th, 1973. Wow. There were five rivers. One, two, three, four. And the fifth river could not be seen at all. Could be heard at night time. So they put out blankets to catch the river. And in the morning, when they woke up, there was a brand new, clean, blue river. This was the fifth river. The fifth river could not be seen at all, but could be heard at night, so they put blankets out to catch it. The next telling is in New York City's Felt Forum on November 22, 1973. Rivers are difficult to find sometimes, especially when the first river is on the monitor speaker. And the second river, a little further over, they discovered somewhere... Beneath the second symbol sound, stand number two, two rivers. A little further along, they discovered Nisantar number three, three rivers, three rivers consisting of water, water flowing in one direction. They went a little further on until they discovered the fourth river. This was somewhere south of the base pedals flowing in an easterly direction. And finally, they went right to the extreme of their territory and they wanted to look for the... for the... you dummies, for the... Thank you. <clears throat> they couldn't find the... because the... In that one, you can hear that Peter's using the stage to form the geography. It kind of fits in with the story as filler while the band tunes. And this song in particular is characteristic of the complexities prog rock is known for. This is Peter telling the tale at the Roxy in Los Angeles, the early show on December 19, 1973. The source of the second river. In the very center of our land, there was a small hedgehog enjoying himself urinating. This was the start of the third river. The fourth river was a heap of deceased bass guitars crying. The fourth river, the fourth river. And then moving right over to the furthest point, we were waiting for, or looking for, the... I can see you weren't all here the first show. 
waiting for the Thank you. But the fifth river was not there. But we could hear this little tripping sound. So we followed the tripping sound, which took us somewhat back to where we started earlier on. To the mouth of the first of the fifth. Funny that the hedgehog appears again for no reason. Maybe he spotted Spiny Norman from the Return of the Giant Hogweed intro. He's also playing with the audience and not getting the response he needs. The story gets more elaborate from here, as we can tell from this telling of it from Guzman Hall, Miami, Florida, on March 9th, 1974. We collectively shat on a pigeon. Feeling a little thirsty after all this physical exercise, we leapt into a railway train and picked up the nearest human body. We could tell it was human because it had H-U-M-A-N written on a little badge on the left breast. And we laid the human body down upon the floor of the railway carriage and jumped upon it many times. Because we had been taught that the human body was 90% water, and water would quench our thirst. <laughs> the exercise involved in jumping upon the human body made us even thirstier still. And it was with tremendous pleasure we viewed the little puddle of clear water emanating from the extreme left-hand toe. The fifth body, we repeated this procedure on, produced but we hear a hat for Phil Collins and He's getting the band involved now, creating the river from bodies. The hedgehog is gone, but a Scottish mouth on the fifth body, a play on Firth, becomes the point, the Firth, that the fifth river comes from. In the next narration from Detroit's Ford Auditorium on April 16, 1974, Peter elaborates this narrative. Feeding a little thirsty on our way here. Very thirsty. We pulled some human bodies from out of their packets and put them on the railway carriage floor in a horizontal position to enable us to jump upon them. Because remembering the human body was 98% water, we deduced that if we jumped upon the human body for long enough, we would eventually arrive at a small heap of dust and a clear, cool pool of water suitable for drinking. After several hours, we produced the first pool of clear water on the left-hand side of where the body had lay. No. And we drank the water very eagerly began on the next, and then the next, and the next. As we were approaching the fifth body, we were beginning to realize that the amount of water we got out of this very lengthy jumping upon process was slightly less than that required to quench our thirst for the jumping upon of the body. And it was at this moment of enlightenment, of realization, that we noticed the pool of water beside the fifth body was very dirty around where the mouth had been, a dirty mouth. 
and being the body of a Scottish gentleman who used to affectionately refer to his mouth as the Firth. It was the Firth of the Fifth. And then at the Music Hall in Boston, Massachusetts, eight days later on April 24th, 1974. The uh, journey was very thirsty-making. I don't like the chaos here tonight. And remembering the human body was 98% water. We pulled a few human bodies from a nearest container, laying them down flat upon the ground to facilitate jumping upon them. After several hours of jumping upon them, he produced a small heap of dust and a clear pool of water. This water was fresh and suitable for drinking. So we drank the water. Unfortunately, the fifth time we repeated this process, we were beginning to realize that the amount of water derived from jumping upon the body was something less than enough quench our thirst in all the exercise and so jumping. And we noticed too that the water was filthy around where the mouth had been. And it was at the mouth of the first of the fifth that we began this one. And by the time he gets to the Academy of Music in New York City on May 6, 1974, he has gotten away from using the stage as geography to situating it in a mossy and stumpy field. Death by the river. Have you seen death by the river? Thank you. We have too. It was lovely. The field in which death was was all green, yellow, mushy. And there was moss crawling up from the bottom of these stumps which stood out in the middle of the dead field. And the stumps were crumbling. <laughs> and there was moss crawling all the way up. And in the middle of the field was a blue spot. And the blue spot was part of a larger thing which was also green, yellow, lovely colors, soft colors, mushy. It was a human body. And the human body was rotting away like the rest of the field. Now, if we had left the human body where it was, it would only have made the soil a little richer, a little darker, a little more fertile. But as it was, we were very thirsty and we took the dead body from where it lay in the field and put it onside the tarmac in a horizontal position to facilitate us jumping upon it. That was a little jump to give you some idea of what we were doing to the horizontal body. produced a small heap of dust and a clear pool of crystal water which we drank of course because we were very thirsty from all the jumping and the fifth time we found the body in the field and jumped upon it the water and the pool was becoming very dirty very dirty around where the mouth was and being a Scottish mouth which was referred commonly as the Firth and being the fifth body Why? Searching for water, a lot of dead bodies, and a dirty Scottish mouth. That's the story for Firth of Fifth. Finally, at the Genesis reunion at the National Bowl in Milton Keynes, Buckinghamshire, England, on October 2nd, 1982, Peter reduces the story to this. And this is uh, fish farming yesterday and today, straight from the age of aquarium. The first of fifth. Home from work, our duty. 
The next story, and the final one from the Selling England by the Pound group, is The Cinema Show. And fortunate for us, since this is a relatively later song, all of the audio quality is pretty good. The story has a few variations, but towards the end it gets so memorized that Peter starts playing with his voice more. We've heard this before in several of the other stories from the later shows. The first one I'll play comes from the Felt Forum in New York City on November 22, 1973. The fig leaf was stuck under his arm where he kept all his most precious things, and there it remained for several weeks. On investigation of what was under his arm, he found the leaf, and it had changed color to a deep maroon. He ate the deep maroon leaf, and it produced in him a high degree of sexual excitation. <laughs> or even. Fortunately for the whole world, just around the corner, we're standing on a balcony. <laughs> Juliet. <laughs> so Romeo took Juliet, it was 20th century, into the darkness and obscurity and confidence of the cinema. Since you'll get the basics of the story just by repetition, here is the telling from The Roxy in Los Angeles, California, The Late Show, on December 19th, 1973. Romeo had actually been able to have a preview of the Spiegel catalog. And he found, for his Christmas delight, a small green fig leaf. Conceal and appeal, it said. <laughs> so sure enough, believing all that he saw on the television, he concealed what he had to appeal until one day he decided to remove the appeal that was concealing, was obstructing him. It was taken off with an almighty pole <coughs> and stuck under his arm where he kept all his precious things. Here, it changed colors over the course of two weeks and was taken out a strange maroon, crumpled into a fine dust in his hand, stuffed in between his moist, hungry lips and eaten. And it produced in Romeo what is known as a high degree of sexual excitation. <laughs> This, for those of you who haven't been at all the other five performances. Thank you very much. You want to see that money again? Is subtle symbolism. Around the corner, uh, on the balcony, little Juliet was uh, selling her wares. So he grabbed her off and landed her in the cinema, whereupon he began the cinema show. The Spiegel catalog is a reference to the story from the song that preceded that one, which I played earlier. You can see Peter is having more fun with his delivery. Here is the version from the Student Auditorium in Toledo, Ohio, on April 6th, 1974. <laughs> this is a central piece of symbolism. <laughs> Fortunately for Romeo, 
who was finding subtle pieces of symbolism extremely tiring to carry around for long periods. <laughs> Just around the corner was a little girl called Juliet, hovering over a balcony, singing sweetly to herself, somewhat like this. by the emotion on the balcony, the young man, Romeo, was moved towards her. The young lady was grabbed off, taken into the darkness of the cinema, and what went on a few minutes later is he described as the cinema show. And in Detroit's Ford Auditorium, 10 days later on April 16th, 1974, Thank you very much, marvellous, wonderful, beautiful, lovely to have you all here tonight. The second little story concerns a gentleman called Romeo, 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 got it? He had a fungus, a small fungus, but a fungus all the same, hovering above his knees and below his waist. And the fungus seemed to move with tremendous courage and stuck it in the oven where he kept it for two weeks. Two weeks later, the fungus had changed colour, changed colour to a deep maroon colour. And maroon fungus was crumpled up in his fingers to powder form and stuck in between his lips and produced in Romeo a high degree of sexual excitation. The moving hand, you may have noticed, a moving hand, is in fact a subtle piece of symbolism all the events that have just taken place in the story. Subtle pieces of symbolism, as some of you in our audience may well appreciate, can become extremely tiring carried around for long periods. And it was very fortunate for our hero, our hero Romeo, that just around the corner, on a balcony, was sweet little Juliet singing sweetly to herself, not unlike this. Hero is much moved by this little singing on the balcony. <laughs> so moved that he grabbed the young lady and took her off into the darkness of the cinema, where what went on was described briefly as the cinema show. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, seeing how our little acting sketches are going down so well tonight, we decided to introduce a cast of three for this last sketch. A sudden visit from Jeff accompanied Nick and Mike on that last little bit. Touching, wasn't it? <laughs> Meanwhile, back to the cinema show. The Nick the Roadie sketch that he used repeatedly gets a third member with Jeff. But then in this next telling at the University Sports Center in Montreal, Canada, on April 20th and 21st in 1974, you can hear that Peter's French is much improved since those early Belgium shows. L'homme s'appelle Romeo. Il a une feuille d'Adam. Il l'enlève. Et la mange. Elle produit dans lui une excitation sexuelle énorme. C'est bon pour lui parce qu'il voit immédiatement Juliette sur son balcon. Elle chante. transport dans l'obscurité d'une salle du cinéma. Ceci s'appelle The Cinema Show. 
Here, finally, is the New York Academy of Music on May 6th, 1974. This is the tale of the heart. Romeo, very easy name. Juliet. Now, Romeo had a small fungus hovering above his knees, below his waist. He removed the fungus, stuck it in the apple. It was there for two weeks. Changed colour to a deep maroon fungus. The remains were scrambled up in his wet, moist hands, stuffed into his tight lips, and chewed upon until digested. Produced in Romeo a high degree of sexual excitation. Some of you may be familiar with this raising hand. It is generally referred to as a piece of subtle symbolism. Some of our audience tonight may be familiar with the fact that subtle symbolism can become extremely tiring if carried around for long periods. It was fortunate for our hero that just around the corner on the balcony was the beautiful young Juliet swinging and singing sweetly to herself a little like this. Come up and get it! This charming song brought tears to the eyes of our hero and produced a recurrence of the effect now described as subtle symbolism. He was so moved by this great voice on the balcony that he grabbed the young lady off and led her into the local building described as the cinema. And what went on in the building between this gentleman Romeo and the young lady Juliet was described as the cinema show. In these later shows, Juliet's actions on the balcony and her words are much more specific. And there are plenty more versions of the cinema show story, but you get it. The stories I'll move to next from The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway are far more interesting. And this brings us to The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Now, since The Lamb, though it was a series of songs, is a full concept album, Peter changes his format. Rather than having individual stories for each song, he uses three summations, one at the beginning and two throughout, following the format of the sides of this double album. On this tour, they played the entire album from start to finish, and if I'm not mistaken, they toured before the album was even released. Peter tells the story of Rail, a young Puerto Rican man in New York City and his adventures, sexual and otherwise. The songs are built as narratives, so you can get the story through the lyrics, and the story itself was printed on the gatefold of the record sleeve, where before the band members shared lyric writing on the albums. For this one, Peter insisted on writing all of the lyrics himself. This applied some pressure to the previous democratic nature of the band, but in terms of the story, Peter was a fan of Alejandro Jodorowsky's film El Topo, so much so that after the fact, he sought out the film director to adapt the lamb for the screen. They collaborated on a script together, but it has yet to see the light of day, except for a blog post by someone who says he knew Jodorowsky for 20 years and claims to be the owner of the original script. He includes photos of that 49-page manuscript, but otherwise has kept it secret. So we don't have that, but what we do have, thanks to only the wonderful people posting live shows on the internet, with special mention to Orlando bootlegs, is scant quality video footage, varying quality audio recordings, excellent photographs, and finally evidence of the stories Peter told to introduce the songs. And that's what I'm here to play. The Lamb is the most recorded of the Gabriel Years Genesis shows, so there are a lot of versions out there. So since the stories are much longer, and they are for the most part memorized and recited, I'm only going to play two full sets. For whatever reason, the first part is clipped off of most narrations, but I found two of them. And there is one from the Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles on January 24, 1975, that was included in the Genesis Archive box set, 
but it's one where the band, decades later, reconstructed many of the songs and intros, including part one, that too clearly sounds like the late Peter Gabriel's voice rather than the early Peter Gabriel's. So I'm skipping that one. The first set I'm going to play starts with part one from the Indiana Convention Center in Indianapolis on November 22, 1974. Part two is from the Palace Theater in Providence, Rhode Island on December 8, 1974. And I've chosen to play this version because it includes an interesting interruption in the middle that puts the story in the context of a live show. And then part three is from the Dome in Rochester, New York on December 17, 1974. The thing is, is a story concerning a guy off the streets of New York by the name of Rail. A large wall is lowered into Times Square and sinks across 47th Street until it eventually wipes off the entire Manhattan Island. The wall hits our hero and knocks him unconscious. He regains consciousness in a cocoon-like situation, which in turn becomes a rock-like cave which causes a claustrophobic fear. He removes himself from this at the sight of his brother John and is taken into a place called the Grand Parade of Lifeless Packaging, which is an inanimate building filled with motionless bodies. We've divided it up roughly in the same way we have on the record, which was four sides. And this is the first section of the story of Rail. That particular series of events took our hero through a reconstruction of the streets of New York into his first romantic boudoir. After many months of study of the sexual technique by numbers school of philosophy, our masterful hero had mastered all of his sexual movements from the initial arousal to completion in the magnificent time of 78 seconds flat. He achieved this magnificent accomplishment with the tick of his second-hand watch and he hummed the numbers 1 to 78 in his head. Unfortunately, the first testing was a dismal failure. Our hero was left cuddling his own prickly porcupine. From the porcupine and the prickles of the porcupine, he moved to the soft woolen carpet in the large corridor where hundreds of little people were obsessively... So, returning to the corridor, because it seems very little else we can do, there are hundreds of little cruelly people obsessively moving towards the large window, where there's a sound of feedback, and through the feedback there's a large table with a large feast of strawberries and such like and a spiral staircase leading all the way up to a circular chamber of 32 doors. Only one of these doors is capable of taking our hero and all the other carpet crawlers out. This is where We assume our equipment is functioning correctly and continue with normal service. To continue with the great cosmic excretion, our hero is being led by a blind lady through the chamber of 32 doors, down a long passageway, a very basic passageway, where he enters a large round cave. And the cave is very dark and the lady walks off leaving him. And as the darkness grows, two golden globes begin to appear down a small passageway, 
and they're hovering off the ground and they enter the cave very slowly until the cave is so dazzling super soap white that Raymond becomes a little frightened and he picks up a stone, hurtles it at the center of the whiteness causing the ceiling to collapse and trapping him in an inescapable heap of rubble. This of course provides him with an opportunity to meet his own personal hero, a gentleman better known to all of us as Death. Death is wearing one of his delightful costumes that he designed so beautifully himself. His ambition is to travel and meet people. He's carrying on his back a delightful feature, a snuff puff packet. One puff, one puff only, and you snuff it. His snuff puff fails on rail. Rail escapes, enters a pool of water with three beautiful snake woman creatures called Lamia. Beautiful. Which he finishes off by eating their bodies, which in turn turns him into an ugly, lumpy, bumpy, humpy species of humanity. Not totally dissimilar from Phil Collins on my immediate left. Bring your own grapes. Phil, or those of you familiar with these lumpy, bumpy problems will perhaps understand the only way to remove the lumps and bumps of a slipper man is to sever the sexual organs. In the colony of slippermen, this operation is performed by a notorious Dr. Diaper, reformed sniper, who for a very small fee will guarantee to cut off your very own windscreen wiper. And these, he drops into a fully sterilized yellow plastic tube for his yellow plastic tube bank, or you can wear it round your neck on a gold chain. But out of the sky, a huge black bird called Raven comes swiftly down, picks up Rail's yellow plastic tube, sinking slowly, and as he does this, he flies away down a tunnel, drops it into a mass of rushing water called Ravine, where John sees his drowning brother, John. If you listen to enough of these Rail stories, you'll hear that Peter swaps the comparison to the Slippermen to various people. Often it's Phil Collins, sometimes Michael Rutherford, once Steve Hackett, and I'm sure there are others. And if you were listening closely, you'll have noticed at the end of that Rochester intro, Peter says that John sees his drowning brother John. While this sounds like a mistake, since it's the story of Rail who sees his brother John, at the second-to-last song, before the final song titled It begins... The lyric says that Rail looks at the face of his brother John in the water and he sees his own face. It's mine, it's mine, he says. Though it's supposed to be Rail seeing his own face in the water in the form of his brother John's, in this oddball version it turns out to be John seeing John's face. So if by the end Rail and John are one and the same, it's not really a mistake since it doesn't matter which one sees his own face reflected because there aren't two but only one. So I'll play one more round, this time part one from the Lyric Theater in Baltimore, Maryland on December 1st, 1974. The audio quality is not the best, but since this part one intro is so rare, I'll play it. Then part two from Kansas City Memorial Hall, Kansas City, Missouri on February 1st, 1975. And then part three from the Birmingham Hippodrome in Birmingham, England on May 2nd, 1975 which is the first recorded versions of these stories that I'd heard so many years ago from a bootleg titled Swelled and Spent. The bit about throwing the stone to collapse the ceiling and introduce the death character is missing, but it's really hard to tell if it's been cut or if Peter just skipped over the details and went into animating Mr. Death. And with that one, you'll be able to hear that Peter got more animated with his characters in the 1975 shows. These changes arrived to a gentleman by the name of Ray, who was just walking down the streets of New York on a large, very 
settled all the way along 47th Street and began to suck in the entire Manhattan Island. He regained consciousness in a small cocoon beneath the ground. This is the first part of the story of Royal, which is uh, what we've been writing for about the last six months. We've been taking the whole thing for you tonight. We divided it up roughly the same way we did on the record. This is the end of the first assignment. At this precise point in the story, our hero is moving underground into an almost perfect reconstruction of the streets of New York. And with these familiar sights, he begins to remember his first moments of familiarity with a young lady, romantic adventure. He bought a book titled Erogenous Zones, Difficulties in Overcoming Finding Them. And after many months of study, his final day, day of judgment arrived. And his complete sexual emotions from initial arousal to the completion lasted a mere 78 seconds. He'd failed even remotely to titillate his opposite number. And he was left cuddling a rather large prickly porcupine, which he took with him onto a soft carpeted corridor with thousands of little people crawling towards a heavy wooden door which led up a staircase into a room with 32 other doors, only one of which was going to get any of them out.
huge express train hurtled into the cave with a giant packet of R-E-N-N-I-E-S on the back. <laughs> so I packed one huge pair off, broke it under my pickaxe, stuffed the little bits down their throats, and they shriveled up and died. I then ate what was left of their bodies, and this turned me into a horrible, lumpy, humpy, bumpy species of a man, not altogether different from the way you see Michael Rutherford. <laughs> I'm going to leave you to listen to the other versions of the stories from the Lamb shows on your own. There are plenty out there, but these stories as intros to the songs don't tell it all. The full story of The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway is out there to read, and it's fully cinematic in its scope. In the written version, the intro hints at a more whiz than Wizard of Oz landscape-changing moment which is followed by an Alice in Wonderland through the Looking Glass adventure that borders on a West Side Story vibe and eventually tumbles into the El Topo realm. It would make a great film, and with Peter's animation and pastiche skills, it's due for a making. But I'm going to leave it there for now and bring to an end this three-part series on Peter Gabriel the Stories, focusing on the years 1967 to 1975. In the future, I'll do an episode on the stories that Peter tells during his solo career. But for now, I'm exiting in 1975, the same year Peter left Genesis. First of all, we'd just like to say that... uh... In case any of you haven't understood why you've been sitting there waiting all this time, there was a leak in the ceiling which was allowing rain to fall into the stage, which was in danger of electrocution. Secondly, uh, the advertising for this we felt uh, was something appropriate to bullshit.
Someone actually concerns a collector, a man by the name of Saplock, who used to collect everything that he had in his life, uh, bus tickets, paper bag, all sorts. So his room was full of junk, and every time he got more and more stuff, he had to build his house a little bit bigger and bigger and bigger. Eventually, disaster struck when his dog, Ronaldo, died. So he took Ronaldo to the place where all dead dogs should go, to the taxidermist. And Ronaldo was back in his room within a week, and he sat, first of all, on his chair, but he didn't look quite right there, he didn't look very comfortable. And he tried him by the fireplace where he usually sat, and then he lifted him up in his full glory and stood him on the table. And just then, the glass eyes began to wink a little, and some sign of life returned to the dog, and his tail wagged. And as that happened, the table began sprouting branches and leaves, and everything started moving backwards into life, and the coal moved into sort of compressed gunge. And, and there was a, a strange rug just in front of the car. Fire. Made out of lamb's wool. And the rug slowly returned to life, and there was a little lamb. This is David Colosi, and you've been listening to Peter Gabriel The Stories, Part 3, on the Napping Wizard Sessions. Thanks for listening, and tune in for something else.